Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley & Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley & Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. Today, I'm speaking with Eileen Ridley. Eileen is a litigation partner out of Foley's San Francisco office, and I am super excited about this episode because Eileen holds a number of leadership positions within Foley and Lardner including the position of Chief Diversity and Inclusion Partner. Thus, as you can probably imagine, in my role as Director of Diversity and Inclusion, I work closely with Eileen. And it was so fun for me to sit down and have dedicated time to ask her questions about herself, because as you can imagine, these are not things we usually get to talk about. But our conversation begins with Eileen reflecting on growing up in the Bay Area. She shares about how it was that she ends up attending Notre Dame, for college and why it was that she decided to become a lawyer. Now, to many at Foley, Eileen is a fixture of the firm. She's been with the firm for over 18 years, which can make it really easy to forget, or actually a lot of people may not know, that Eileen actually was a lateral to Foley. She joined the firm with over a decade of experience, so she talks about why she joined Foley and why it was she lateraled. But then we talk about her many leadership positions in the firm and how exactly it was that as somebody who was not homegrown to the firm, she was able to quickly gain traction and found herself in a number of leadership positions, including she's the current vice chair of the litigation department. She sits on the firm's partner promotion and compensation committees. She's a longtime co-chair of the LGBTQA affinity group. And previously, she was on the firm's management committee, as well as the office managing partner of the San Francisco office just to name a few of the things Eileen has done while at Foley. So in addition to having Eileen talk about her path, I had to get her to reflect on her many leadership roles. I wanted to get her advice on how others can have the same experience she did and find themselves so integrated into an organization and a part of management and leadership. And of course, because she is Foley's Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer, I had to have her reflect a bit on diversity and inclusion at the firm. But what I will say is one of the most poignant parts of this discussion to me is the advice Eileen gives about the importance of humor and always trying to see the best in people. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Eileen, welcome to the show. Let's jump right in and have you give your professional introduction. Hi, nice to be here. My professional introduction. I am a partner with Foley and Lardner. I am a trial lawyer by trade. And I specialize in sort of three generalized areas, competition claims, complex insurance claims, and privacy and cybersecurity issues. All right, a couple of things to get out of the way for the listener. I'm in the middle of a home renovation. If you hear noise in the background, that's me. We are doing our best to minimize that, but we'll see what happens. And also, Eileen, in some ways, I think you, I've heard you joke that you're the, was it the joke that you're the Jan Brady of the firm? Yeah. <laughs> we'll jump back to sort of your origin story. But first, I do have to preface this by saying, yes, when I talk about Eileen, who I work with, and your uh, you know, capacity as chief diversity and inclusion partner, I'm like, and she's on the partner selection committee and on the 
compensation committee and she was on the management committee and she was the office managing partner of the San Francisco office. And she's currently the vice chair of the litigation department. Something like that. I'm probably missing a few things. Yes, I think all of those are true. I used to be the training partner I uh, for the litigation department. I'm on the pro bono committee. So yes, it, it has not been my joke. Others in the firm have joked that I am the Jam Brady of the firm because I've been on the, all the committees. So. We will get to that and to all of your insights as to what you learned about Foley and law firms once we get to that part of your story. But let's start at the beginning. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? I am from, deep in my heart, I am from the Bay Area. The reason I say that is folks in the Bay Area are somewhat parochial about allowing people to say they're from the Bay Area. And to give you a sense of what I'm talking about, I was actually born in Jersey City. Oh, yeah. The Bay Area people are already like, well, you can't be from the Bay Area then. But okay, go on. Including my wife and child, both of whom were actually born in San Francisco. So this is very close to home, this parochial (laughs) issue. Yes. But at the ripe age of three months, my family moved to the San Francisco Bay Area, in particular, San Mateo County. Okay, the facts are getting better. The facts are getting better for you. For my, yes. yes. (laughs) So I am from the Bay Area. I was certainly completely and totally raised in the Bay Area from 1963 to the present. And uh, while I've lived different places, my permanent residence has always been in the Bay Area. All right. So what was it like growing up in the Bay Area? You know, a snapshot. And then we'll get to the whole, you know, why'd you become a lawyer and all that. But I'm trying to just get a sense of sort of what was life like for little Eileen Ridley? <laughs> so it's, it's different. I think I would describe the Bay Area in a way that I think a lot of people right now would not necessarily recognize the Bay Area the way I grew up in it. So I grew up, as I said, in San Mateo County. And so that's not San Francisco. That's the county essentially directly south of San Francisco. So it's actually between Santa Clara County, meaning Silicon Valley, right, and San Francisco, to give you folks who are not familiar with the area an idea. So when I grew up, San Francisco, for example, was sort of this mystical place we would go in the holidays to see the stores all gussied up and things of that sort, lights and all of that. And Santa Clara and the Silicon Valley, literally there were still orange groves. I mean, it was literally of the sticks, (laughs) Um, to give you a sense of things. And the freeway drive from San Francisco to where I lived and back, literally, I mean, there were trees. There are now campuses like Oracle and, you know, things like that. But at that time, there were trees. So vastly different kind of experience than I think uh, kids who are experiencing the Bay Area now had. And so we would do things. There was a huge, you know, field near my home growing up, and we would just spend the whole day sort of exploring this, you know, large open land field and come home when the sun was going down. It's sort of very, very different, a little bit bucolic in that regard. Mm -hmm. And I know you've mentioned to me, I think you have a, a brother. I don't know if there's anything worth mentioning, like siblings or that. And I swear, I'll get to the law part, but I'm just trying to get a sense for people. So they would certainly say it was worth mentioning. So my brother (laughs) is a twin. He's my twin brother. He is also a lawyer, can derive what you will from that reality. And we have an older sister who's three years older than we are. And she's more in the, you know, um, psychology, sociology area. Okay. So when does this, I think I want to be a lawyer thing happen? Did you know this? Were you somebody who knew it from a young age or did it happen later? Walk me through. So uh, I don't know that I knew it from a young age, although certainly growing up as a twin, I think provides some 
skill sets that are useful um, in lawyering. That is very interesting. Wait, what do you mean? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I adore my brother and we're very, very close. But, you know, knowing how to sort of represent yourself or argue your position and things of that sort, it was somewhat critical growing up. (laughs) So I think we both honed each other's skills in that regard. So That's funny. I think I'm doing that to my own children. So they are just over two years apart. It's not quite that twin dynamic, but they're close enough. And things will happen. And I'll look and I explain to them why whatever they said wasn't compelling and how they should have said it this way if they wanted me or my husband to care. (laughs) So that is interesting. Okay. I have a story about my kiddo about that when I realized how much being a lawyer infiltrated into the family and I can tell it later, but it's, it's fairly humorous. It kind of woke me up as to how it's sort of an everyday experience, especially since my wife's a lawyer too. So you talk in a shorthand, I think, if you live with lawyers. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so let's walk up to this, but maybe fast forward to like high school, you're going to college. What was that decision making like? Where did you go for college? What did you major in? <laughs> okay, so in high school, so you're going to laugh because I think you know where this ends up, but in high school, I went to a high school that was called Notre Dame High School. I grew up in a Roman Catholic family, you know, aunts who were nuns and priests within the family line. So when we were growing up, both my brother and I, my parents decided we were going to Catholic high schools. And I went to an all-girl Catholic high school. He went to an all-boy Catholic high school. So there was not a decision-making process for me in that. (laughs) It was more a directive. It happened to be that my mother also worked at that high school. She was a registrar for the high school. And so she, of course, knew the principal and the vice principal. I could hardly do anything in the school without it somehow <laughs> finding way back down to my mother. Good news was I did very well in high school. I ended up being the valedictorian. And the principal of the high school really wanted to have to be able to say that one of the graduates would be accepted to Notre Dame University. Notre Dame University was not in my radar. I was applying to UCLA, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So my mother, as a favor, asked if I would just apply to Notre Dame just to give the principal that potential. Should I get in? Well, I got in. And so I remember waking up one day and my parents had three baseball hats on the table, one of which was Notre Dame, and the other two were other schools I was considering. And they said, would you just, we'll fly you out to Notre Dame if you could just look at it before you make the decision. Oh, first it's, could you just apply the notes? Could you just see it? Yeah, just like, you know, just, you know, go. So I did. And to be honest, the atmosphere of the place really affected me. I mean, it was very much the stereotypical Ivy League kind of school cool feel, right? Both from the campus-wise, in the sense of its aesthetics, as well as the the population. Plus, I've always been into sports, did a lot of sports. And so there was an attraction. And candidly, it was a nice idea not to be in California, because I wanted to go away to college. I wanted that experience. And most of the people in my high school were going to stay in California. So all of that combined ended up with me deciding to go to Notre Dame. So you go to Notre Dame. Yes, I did know where it ended, but you've connected the dots for me because I never appreciated the trans, you know, making it from California to Notre Dame. That's the gap to close. And what was your major? What did you think you wanted to do? Yeah. So it was funny because I entered into Notre Dame as an engineer. 
an electrical engineer and actually enjoyed it was an engineer all the way through to my junior year even took a few classes and I guess technically you would say that I have a minor in engineering from from Notre Dame but right around the junior year mark I remember I was in a lab I was in our circuitry lab and to date myself, but to give you a sense, I was using, the language we were using were Fortran, right? And I was, I had the GA cards in the shoebox kind of thing. That's, like, I okay. mean, <laughs> again, you get the idea. So I was in the circuitry lab and we, we were working in groups and you're sitting there working on the, on the circuit. And I was stupidly trying to make small talk <laughs> and I was talking about movies and trying politics and trying books and stuff and could not get the group to engage. I it just couldn't. But boy, if you wanted to talk about the circuit. They had things to say. <laughs> and so I had this epiphany of, is this what I want for the next 50 years? And the resounding internal voice was like, no, I don't think I could survive doing it, this for the next 50 years. So... At the time, I was minoring in philosophy, and so I flipped it. So I've actually graduated Notre Dame with a major in philosophy and English literature and a minor in electrical engineering. Eileen, I was also a philosophy major. You're the yeah, only other person okay. on the show so far. So I was, but I was law and society and philosophy, which is essentially poli sci or pre law. Yeah, okay. And then I was like, I'll pick up a minor in philosophy, and then it was like three more classes for a major. So. Sure, let's do that. <laughs> but I do often joke, I'm not quite sure how useful that was for me to pick. So my majors were like, I'm going to law school. That's all my major said. I'm just planning to go to law school. But that's so funny because you are the first person who's done that so far. <laughs> and so did you know then law school was next or how does that come onto the scene? No, I mean, I did it. I think the reason why I was attracted to philosophy was, I certainly have always liked the give and take, which was also what sort of propelled me out of engineering in the sense of having give and take outside the, <laughs> the mechanical or electrical issue. There's a logic in philosophy, right, which is also something you could see in engineering. And I think that's what sort of attracted me to doing it. So I made that change much to the surprise of many people. And then when it got to the point of, okay, well, what's the next step, right? What, what am I going to do next? I was really juggling going into a PhD program in philosophy Ooh, or, okay. going to, or going to law school and got accepted to programs. And so I, again, had to weigh it back and forth. And I ultimately, no offense to the philosophers out there who are pure philosophers, but I didn't want to be in an ivory tower. I thought, mm-hmm. you know, in a, my benighted sense, I guess, that I thought law was sort of a practical philosophy, that it would be of this world. And that was far more attractive to me. That resonates with me, though, because that logic, I remember taking logic yeah. at some point and writing logical proofs right. and really enjoying it. I don't remember much of that now, but that same structure, and I mean, obviously, I see you building this, the case for you being a litigator, because in many ways, that's what litigators do. We're like, if you're going to argue that, you can't argue that. Right. And I could draw the proof to show you why you can't have both of those things. So, yeah, that really resonates with me. But so you you go to law school and where do you go to law school? I go to law school at Santa Clara University. So I had, with due respect to my Midwest colleagues, (laughs) 
I was done being in the Midwest. I knew I always wanted to go back to California. My family is from the East Coast and the East Coast was fine, but I really wasn't attracted to like thinking about living in the East Coast. I definitely wanted to come back to California. And so that's what I did. Uh, came back to California, actually worked for a year and then applied to law school. Um, it's funny, though. So when we first met, it was very clear you were a very avid fan of Notre Dame. <laughs> so, you, <laughs> so you went out, got the the major Notre Dame fan for life, and then came back to California, brought that with you. And so for those who've listened to the show, they know that you know I went to Michigan for law school. I have been a Michigan household. This Notre Dame-Michigan thing has not been a point of contention for us. It is I not. Do not. <laughs> I am not a sports fan. Although you now have a kiddo who goes to Michigan for college, which is, I think the entire firm has been like, been like, oh, how is Eileen going to deal with that? But you're managing. <laughs> so far, so good. No, one, okay. no one's been injured. <laughs> but so you go to law school and like, I've already said, I assumed you knew you wanted to do litigation, but did you, did you go in there with any preconceived notions of what practice was going to be for you? Yeah, I, I wanted to be a trial lawyer from the get-go. I think I'm a frustrated actor. I've always liked the theater and all of that. So it was a way to sort of combine the two interests. And yeah, there was no, I never had a second thinking I would do anything other than trial work. So how does that work? And the fun thing for me is, I know that you joined Foley at this point, it's probably like 18 or so years ago, 18, 19, but that you started your career in a different firm, became a, a partner there. I'm not even quite sure the best way to dissect it, but as you reflect on that, what, what happens next? You joined a firm straight out or what did you do to become a trial lawyer? Yeah, so there's some connection. So I'll go back to Notre Dame for a minute because one of the things I did that I thought was a great thing I did was I, I was in a program studying in London. Honestly, yeah, I learned a lot at Notre Dame, but I grew up in the London program. As a person, I grew up in London. Program. So I have very, very tender feelings about London and stayed there almost a complete year because I was there for one semester and then stayed over in the summer. So I was there for almost a year. And the reason why that's relevant is by the time I was graduating law school, it was the late 80s, early 90s. And the economy, if, for people who were <laughs> out and about in the workplace at that time was horrible. I mean, it was just terrible. And I actually was leaving law school thinking that I would be a public defender. That's what I wanted to do. And the government was hiring no one. In fact, it was shedding people because of the economy. So I was saddled with, I've got bills to pay. <laughs> mm -hmm. The government's not hiring anybody. I've got to find a way to apply my trade, earn a living, and maybe I'll find my way back if the economy gets better. But I knew I didn't want to be in a big firm. And the reason why I didn't want to be in a big firm, and you're smiling, but anyway, the reason I didn't so want to be in a big firm. It's the best style of people say that. Yeah. <laughs> Go on was because I wanted to try cases. And I was convinced that if I went into a big firm, I'd spend two or three years, you know, in the depths of some document review and would not get the opportunity to say I want. So I ended up joining a small firm. At the time, they had maybe five people. It was an insurance defense firm, which, I mean, I had to just swallow hard because I didn't want to do insurance defense. It was not what I wanted to do, but they were doing it for the London market. Interesting. And see, I connected that dot. So There you go. Yeah. So they were interested in me because the clientele was in London and they could send me off and I would be really comfortable going in and about London and meeting the clientele. And I joined them because it was a small firm. They were actually doing really complex cases. So the likelihood of me 
getting the immediate experience I wanted was really high. And that proved to be true because my first trial was literally within the first year of my practicing law. So that's the reason why. And I did end up going to London a lot. So that was sort of the cherry on top. I love the whole idea. I would end up in a big firm. And we will close the gap. We will talk about you ultimately (laughs) joining what has become a very large firm. Very large firm, yeah. Yeah, but that's why this is so fun is because you get to see that path that people took. And then so how long were you with that firm doing the insurance-related litigation work or defense work? Yeah, so I was with that firm. This is unusual now. I have no issues about commitment because I was with that firm for 10 years. And then the next firm I was with, is fully. So I've had all of <laughs> two firms in my career, which I know is kind of rare. And when I joined the firm, the firm was called Bogey, Garvey, and Bushner. And then I eventually became a name partner. So it became Bogey, Garvey, Bushner, and Ridley. Which is no small feat. <laughs> no so, small feat. <laughs> right? And so at this point, and I think I, I probably guessed right, because I think the last time you mentioned that you'd been at fully 17 years, that's probably like a year ago. So it's now 18 years or so past joining Foley. Could you speak about what that transition was like? Maybe some of the motivations behind joining Foley and just, I don't even know. We have to figure out how to dissect the past 20 or so years at Foley. But yeah, just what are your reflections on that? So I've been practicing with the bogey firm and learned a ton. I mean, and got all the opportunities you could possibly ever want for somebody who kind of rapidly wanted to be a trial lawyer. I mean, I, I got to actually do trials. I got immediate client interactions, right? I did depots. I think I did my first depot. I did my first court hearing the day after I was sworn in. I did my first depot within the next two months. I mean, it was a move kind of get going. So it was a bit of a learning by fire, but it gave me a lot of confidence by the time I got to the 10th year. So by the time I got to the 10th year, I had clients who basically were saying, hey, Eileen, we want to give you more work, but your firm at its height is 13 Capacity. people. And yeah. So you got to make some decisions here and, and we're not going to take work away from you, but we're not going to give you what you might this. get, yeah. right, if you don't think about platform. So I had a friend who was with Foley in the San Francisco office who I'd gone to law school with. And Foley was looking to include more people who had trial experience in the California offices. They were specifically looking for it. And she had been knocking on my door a number of different times. And I was always sort of yeah, 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 whatever, whatever, you know. She was persistent and she happened to knock on the door like soon after the clients were saying, you got to really start thinking about platform. I said, okay, I'm happy to look into this. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about that? So you did the, the path to partnership really started with that first firm. You left there as a name partner. Did you join Foley as a, a partner as well? No. I purposely did not. And here's why. It was a leap of faith to go to Foley because I was going from a very small firm, basically getting to do whatever I wanted to, you know, within the realms of reason, right? And now the suggestion was I was going to be going into a big firm. And quintessentially, I had always been sort of against that. So this was a, a leap of faith in a variety of different ways. I didn't want to jump one marriage into another. I kind of wanted dated for a little while, frankly. Mm -hmm. And Foley was just starting its senior counsel program. And so the idea was that I would be a senior counsel maybe for a year or so, see if I really wanted to do this partnership thing, and then go from there. Mm -hmm. The 
interesting thing, and I know people will be shocked by this, at least the way it was pitched to me, I did not have to bring clients. They were just wanting the skill set of being able to try cases. Where I was like, no, but I got these clients, right? Who, who right, want? Right. I want to bring these guys, yeah, too. And so they're like, yeah, don't worry about it. I was like, no, no, no. I'm gonna be. I will be doing that. You know. So. All right. Well, so you know what happens. The proof of concept worked. <laughs> proof of concept worked. Right. You you stayed on. You become partner at the firm, and it's hard because I've zoomed you through your career because we have a couple other general things to talk about, given the other many hats you wear in the firm. But while we're on that, I guess we're at the first third of your your practice, do you have anything that really comes to mind in terms of that just learning to be a lawyer? And, and I think you're probably, actually, I know people come to you for a lot of advice, but as you reflect on that time in your career where you were still gaining the basic lawyering skill set, are there things that come to mind that are worth highlighting or sharing? Yeah, I mean, there are. I mean, I remember the first few years practicing a lawyer, I always describe it as, I felt like I was playing a board game and all the rules were at the box top of the board game, but somebody else had the box top and they would not share it. That was the feeling I had. So I always was feeling that I was playing a game. I vaguely knew the rules, but there were some really finessed rules that I could not quite get the access to. And I had this vague feeling that those who I was playing against were taking advantage of that and it drove me wild. So it kind of propelled me to get really deep into the practical rules. I mean, you know, in law school, you get a lot of the theoretical classes, as you know, and civil procedure. But when you get to the real practicalities, the the real day-to-day, how you deal with objections at a depot or things like that, those were the things that I really wanted to get into and how you worked, for example, the code of civil procedure and things of that sort. How did you figure it out? Was it working with other attorneys, mentors? A little bit of a mentor. I mean, Jim Bogey was a brilliant lawyer. I mean, a brilliant lawyer. So I learned a lot about overall strategy from him. But he had by that time been practicing long enough that he was not in the weeds. He relied on other folks to get in the weeds. It was frankly a matter of survival. I mean, so for example, when people in that firm at that time, when things came in for it to be calendared, I calendared everything. It didn't go into a automated program. I literally had to know that it was code section XYZ with regard to when you had to respond to whatever it was. So I knew the CC that required me to know the CCP, the, I'm sorry, the California Code of Civil Procedure mm-hmm. forward and backward and the federal civil procedure forward and backward. So at the time, if you handed me something, I could cite the code section and how long it would take you to do XYZ. And that was both because that's administratively how the firm worked, but it also, that was to me the hidden box top that I had to really get down. Well, it's a great, I guess, proving ground way that forced you to learn. It's a little bit scary though, because calendaring when you counted wrong can be catastrophic because you miss a deadline. You know, do I include today or does the counting start tomorrow? But another thing you said about the box top and trying to learn the rules. And it's funny, I almost feel like this is an unpopular thing to say, but I think most lawyers would agree, even though it may sound like a knock on the industry, but something I think is so hard about becoming a new lawyer and learning how to be a lawyer is it's usually someone who knows how to do something asking you, the junior person, to do it first, even though you don't know how to do it. (laughs) And sometimes they will give you in detail how, but other times they'll look at you because 
They've always known how to draft a 30B6 notice. It's not a big deal. It's like half a piece of paper. There was always a part of me when I was practicing, and maybe that's why it's good I don't anymore, that was almost like, why don't you do it and then show me how? Because this, I don't know what I'm doing. But there is this, there's a tremendous amount of effort that goes into closing that gap. And I think every new lawyer experiences it. There's no way around it. I actually, I, I completely agree. I mean, I remember the thing about Jim Bogey was, he was a very, very, as I said, really intelligent, but also very confrontational kind of person, which a lot of people could not necessarily withstand for understandable reasons. Some defect in my nature that it didn't bother me. And so he actually wanted people to challenge him, right? And he literally would say to me, I don't want you just to say yes. If you disagree, I want to hear it, but you better have a good reason why. So what it did was it really made me dive in and engage in that way. And there were tons of questions he knew the answer about, but he was pushing me to go figure it out. And if I hadn't figured it out, or at least shown my pathway, he kicked me out of his office. Wow. I appreciate you for sharing that. And I want to actually switch gears a little bit and have you reflect on the various leadership roles you have held and still hold at Foley and how it was that joining the firm as a lateral 10 years into your career, you were able to get integrated enough in the firm to have those opportunities. Is it a matter of enthusiasm of raising your hand or what did you do to get the many opportunities that you've had since joining Foley? Yeah, I didn't say no. Um, is honestly that. I know I say this to other people. I think there's a lot of power in yes. And what I mean by that is, and it does frequently result in some some sacrifice, but it to me, it's a real investment in yourself that you may not get the returns today, but you absolutely are going to get the returns in the future. You may not know how exactly it gets cashed in, but it gets cashed in. And so, For example, I was asked if I would help the litigation department do its training because I was a trial lawyer, right? And I was a person who had 10 years experience, but actually had done a number of trials. So they were, you know, could you do that? And I said, yes. And what that did was that sent me off into different offices in Foley and got me to meet all sorts of partners. I remember Anne-Marie Utes and I kind of connected, she's a partner in our Detroit office, connected sort of over that as well as a number of other people who are in that training program throughout. I got to know the, the department chair, right? I got to know various people in different offices and I enjoy meeting people. And so we then had a sort of rapport and that actually fit fully sort of culture because people are very They're very into the interpersonal interaction. Mm -hmm. An older partner who is now retired used to joke, F&L, Foley and Lerner really means food and liquor, meaning (laughs) there's always an effort, right, to have a meal with somebody or to have a drink, to connect. To get to know people, to create those bonds. Absolutely. And that tends to be my, my framework. So I began to meet people. Well, that moved on to whether or not I would be willing to be a vice chair in the litigation department, which I said yes to. I didn't know if I was going to be able to balance it real well, but I said, yes, I'm going to give it a go. So that got me to meet even more people and the like. And it's just being open enough to talk with people. I'll give a short little vignette here. There was a moment when I was in Chicago. There was a hotel in Chicago that is right next to our offices in Chicago. And and I was there with other people. I think it was for a senior council thing. And there was this man sort of in the corner and he was alone. And there was a group of people who were together. And I don't know why, but the person alone, I knew he, you know, he was associated with the firm. I hadn't really focused in on him, but he was alone. And that seemed sort of 
odd. So I went over and introduced myself. It was when I had just really joined the firm and asked if I could buy him a beer. That person happened to be Ralph Bohr. I remember Ralph Bohr. Who at the time was the CEO of the firm. Yeah, yeah. And he laughed, and, of course, and we had a beer, and we had a great chat together, but he laughed, and he said, I'm sitting here alone to see if anybody would do that. You passed. <laughs> you passed. And I passed, right. But I think it's that openness to meet people, to say yes, to invest back in the firm by doing some of the management has resulted in me being offered additional opportunities, which in turn has enabled me to get to know more people, which in turn has opened more opportunities, and not just opportunities with regard to management within the firm, but client interactions and new cases, because as I met people, they got to know what I did, and I got to know what they did. And so it has, by great measure, absolutely redounded to my benefit. I'm hopeful that the management I've done has redounded a bit to the firm's benefit, but you have to have a little faith when you say yes, that there's going to be a little sacrifice in it, but it'll come back again, multifold. I absolutely think it's benefited the firm. And I just have to pause on that for one moment because I say this almost every episode. We get law students listening. Of course, a lot of our listeners are Foley and Lardner. I'm also getting listeners from other firms. But I do think a common word of advice is getting to know people. Like I just have to pause for a moment, just let that land because yes, you have to be obsessed with becoming a technically skilled lawyer. That's a given. That's a tremendous amount of work that takes a long time. But remembering to also get to know, and hopefully you enjoy getting to know your colleagues. Ideally, those things are something you like. But I think sometimes, particularly as junior lawyers, particularly in those first 10 years, it's very easy just to put your head down and get so focused on the technical skills and the work that you've actually forgotten what I might say is easily up to like 40, 50% of your success within a firm. So that's just really powerful what you shared. No question. And the only thing I would add to that, and I've had associates look at me cross-eyed when I say this, when they're interviewing and whatnot, and that is you have to be open and affirmative in wanting to meet people, and you have to maintain your sense of humor. And people look at me like I'm crazy, and I'm like, the one skill that I honestly affirmatively look for in the people I work with is having a sense of humor. Because you're going to have great days, you're going to have mundane days, and you're going to have really not good days. You just are because that's the human experience. If you can get through the not good days with a little sense of humor and camaraderie, you're going to be closer to the people you Mm -hmm. work with. It's going to be more pleasant and you're going to survive better. So if you've got a sense of humor, you got to really feed it. If you don't, you need to try to grow one. (laughs) And you're in good company. So just the other day, I was listening to a podcast with a former Navy SEAL who's written this book about the attributes of success and leadership, the key attributes. And one of the things he talked about was a sense of humor. He talked about how in Navy SEAL BUDS training, it was the guys who could go through and not, you know, doesn't have to be this way, but they would note the guys who could go through the most arduous task and at the end, make a little joke about it. They could point that person out even early in this. I think it's like a five or six weeks of like a really, really tough, tough training. And I don't, I apologize if I'm slaughtering the way the training works, but you can point that person and say, I think they're going to make it because going through all of this, they still maintain that sense of humor. It's good for the group. It's good for their psyche. So hundred percent. Yes. It has become a key element for me to want you to be part of the team. There's no question about it. All right. In our, we have still have some time left, but I think in our remaining time, it's going to be us predominantly talking about two things. So I listed 
and I'll do it probably in the intro to the show again as well. I listed all the many things you're involved in. I failed to list the fact that you are also co-chair of our LGBTQA affinity group. Multiple times you've mentioned your wife. And I will say I have a little bit of resentment that when I'm talking to somebody who in some way presents like an additional category of diversity, I'm like, so what has it been like being a black attorney, a gay attorney, an immigrant? I've yet to be like, so how has it been being a white person navigating a large law firm? <laughs> and maybe one day I will do that. But I do think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about that experience of navigating large law firms or legal your legal career as an out gay woman. Has it played any factor in your career? And just, you know, what has that been like for you? Wow, that is a big question. Yes, I mean, it absolutely has played a big factor in my career, both with Foley and outside of Foley. I mean, you know, I'm old enough. I'm really young, but I'm old enough to, to say that when I first started, it was a real issue whether or not you were going to come out or not, because there were definitely beliefs and reasons to think that you would not be accepted either in the job or receive good reviews or have clients that want to work with you because of who and what you were. And I just made the decision. It was just too hard. It was There was too much brain damage, mm-hmm. right? Trying to hide who I was. It just I wasn't willing to live a life like that. And I had to, frankly, coach myself. This sounds terrible, but I'm going to say it. I had to coach myself not to assume the worst of people. Mm-hmm. That's really powerful, though. You know, I still do every so often uh, have to, like, coach myself. And But at the same time, I was convinced, and this is going to sound conceited, but I was convinced that once I had a chance to just interact with people, with, you know, notable rare exceptions, I can get on with people and frequently get on very well. And honestly, strategically, I would maybe not sort of come out on introduction to people. Mm-hmm. But once they got to know me and seemed comfortable, that would be when I would be more willing to kind of give more information. And honestly, to a person, they could deal. I mean, and more than deal. And I think that's still probably, it is absolutely part of me. It's an integral part of me. It's not the first thing I don't introduce myself as a, as a lesbian. You know, I think there are other equally interesting things about me, uh, right? A full identity, lots of aspects to your identity, right. but that's certainly one of them, an important one. Yeah. Right. But there was always sort of a, it was always sort of, if you ask the right question, you're going to get the right answer and consequences be what they may. And at the same time, since you mentioned about, you're going to ask about being white in a law firm, it's been interesting because what I just described is a real strategy, right? But I absolutely 100% recognize that if I were a black woman, I would not get to have that strategy, at least with regard to my blackness, right? Because it would be apparent to people immediately. Now, don't get me wrong. I fully assume that when I walk in the room, certain things are apparent and people make an assumption. And so that, I, I get that, I, you know, but I am aware there's a certain odd privilege. And I have, people have asked me, and I, and I actually think being gay has been a gift because it's given me, I think, a broader sight than maybe others have, because I certainly recognize my privilege side, but I've also been marginalized. So I, I have this viewpoint, I think, that while I don't fully understand what it is to be Black or Latinx or, you know, et cetera, mm-hmm. I have some empathy to what it feels like to be marginalized or yeah. able to make a country. To be othered. Yeah. Yep. Well, and you said so many things that are some of my I don't know, just 
favorite things to talk about. We don't have time to dive into them, but that assuming the best in people, having some faith in people, perhaps a little dynamic of meeting people where they are, but also these are core things as you're navigating your life, but they're also core things to the work we do in the firm right? with diversity and inclusion, which tees up one of my other questions for you and we have to talk about because right now it's a podcast between our chief diversity and inclusion partner <laughs> and police director of diversity. We have to take some time to talk a little bit about that. One thing I will say that really attracted me to joining Foley. So as most people know, I summered at Foley. I grew up in the Milwaukee area. I have some good friends that are partners or have worked at Foley. So I knew a lot of things about, about the firm. And then when I saw that Foley was hiring for this role, and you know, DNI jobs are hard. Maybe no one wants to hear that, but you can probably vent. DNI jobs are hard. Switching firms is no small thing because it's yep. a lot to learn. Because to affect any kind of change, you need to understand that organization. So, at, particularly as you get to more senior DNI roles, you don't take switching jobs lightly. But I remember seeing the job posting and being like, "Nope, I like my job. It's fine. I filed it." It went away. And I literally woke up in the middle of the night and was like, but Alexis, you know Foley and Lardner. This one's probably worth looking into. So that's weird, but that happened. But as I you know, applied and did the interview process and had the opportunity to meet you and to meet Jen Patton, it was for me what I thought was the best of both worlds because I was like, Eileen is their chief diversity partner. And because you've done so much in the firm, you have that institutional knowledge, that playbook, all the things that would be on my wish list for me to help drive DNI at an organization. And then the cool thing also, just to sing Foley's praises, what they brought in Jen as chief legal talent officer, which is a really innovative role that not many firms have, which signaled to me this firm is willing to change some things. And so I was like, I get this combo of the new, you know, signaling the innovation, open to change, but also Eileen, who's been at Foley and can just navigate. So that's my just spilling <laughs> what made me say, <laughs> that's like the perfect, if I, if I wrote down what I would want, you bring so much of that. So I don't know, I just had to say that. So it's on the record, it's on the podcast, but I, <laughs> it is not lost on me the various leadership roles you've had and the influence that means you've yielded in the firm and how we're able to use that to drive diversity, inclusion, belonging, equity, and all that at Foley. Well, you know, I appreciate your saying that. I mean, I have had the privilege of having several different management positions at all sorts of different tiers within the firm. So I, I benefit from, I think, somewhat of a unique collective aggregated experience. And I can't tell you how thrilled I was when we got to look for you and we found you and you're here. So I, I want to give that. I was like, you, you've been amazing. But that would not have happened had there not been really significant buy-in from management. But, and when I say management, I mean the management committee, I mean the department chairs, and I mean the individual officers, you know, the CEO, Jay Rothman, the CMO, Stan Jasmine. There was sincere, sincere buy-in at the need with regard to diversity and inclusion and a willingness to, to explore both where we're not, if you know what I mean, mm -hmm. as where we want to go, and to explore how to get there. I think we're happy with the momentum. Everybody knows we're not where we want to be. Mm -hmm. But there is a consistent, sincere, and energetic buy-in to diversity and inclusion. And I would not have taken on this position if that were not the case. And candidly, you would not be here, sadly, if that were not the case. 
And so I am very thankful that that is the case at the firm. And that, that the firm that speaks a lot to the firm because in at bottom says it's willing to look at its culture, mm-hmm. really look at its culture and to try to do the hard work of, frankly, trying to save all the good in the culture while also trying to be innovative so that it broadens that culture to include more people. Yeah, I'm just nodding profusely as you say that, because I think for someone who's listened to these podcasts or who works at Foley, one thing we all often talk about is what really differentiates Foley is the culture and the people. And it is actually very hard to describe it in words that I think can land for someone who hasn't experienced it. But what you said is is spot on and that investment willingness to change, trying to preserve what we like, but willingness to to change and also invest resources. And unfortunately, we don't have the time to dig into all the things that we're doing that we are really excited about with diversity and inclusion. But I know, I think two of our key words as we work on setting firm strategy and moving the firm to where we would like to see it is this word intention. Intention is definitely one of our, our key words. Is this intentional? What's the reasoning behind it? But I think also systems, and that is something that is really important to me because as I sit and think about what can legal do, what can a law firm do, I often think the talent management systems are left out of it. Often DNI is a matter of education, education, training, training, then checking your stats and wondering why things haven't changed. So right. I think one thing that, not one thing, there's so many things that are great, but something that's really meaningful to me is the fact that all of our talent systems, I think pointing to Jen Patton, the new chief legal talent officer, are things that we are looking at. We're looking at what works, what can we elevate? And that's such an important component of the DNI conversation. And not to disparage the other parts, but it's often a missing component that I just think fully is on its way to getting right. But a lot of this is just going to take time. It takes time to, to grow partner classes and to make change in such a large place. But that means a lot to me. Totally agree. Both you and Jen, which is such a huge investment in the future and a huge sign of the willingness to really tackle it. But it's hard to explain to people. I mean, I'm frequently frustrated in the sense of I would love to like snap my fingers and have it all resolved, right? And or whatever. DNI is an aggregated thing. You move the ball by incremental activities. It doesn't get resolved one year over the other. That's, it's just not the nature of the thing. And once you get comfortable with that, and if you've got folks who are with you in the long haul and willing to invest, then you've got a lot to talk about. But if you get so bogged down, and, and, and don't get me wrong, we want, I want to see results. I want to definitely get to be able to, to really see how things are, are moving. I, I think we can show that within the firm. But I also think you have to have patience and the willingness to commit to continue constantly working on it. Well, it's funny, it's the tension in our roles or when you have your hat on as chief diversity inclusion partner, we are the people who are sort of banging on tables like we need these changes now, but we are also the people who will remind individuals or the organization, well, it takes X number of years for someone to become partner or even if every lateral hire had X sort of background, that would still take us Y amount of time to affect the change we're looking for. So it's having both of these these mindsets. And I don't know if we'll do it one day, Eileen, Maybe we should. I mean, we could have a special podcast where it was just the two of us, like, just talking about various aspects of diversity and inclusion. We'll see if there's demand for that. As we wind down, I did want to pause to say, you know, is there anything else that we haven't spoken about that you would like to talk about before we conclude? And then next would be, what's your advice as you reflect on your career? What advice would you give to somebody who wants to be a lawyer or who is navigating a legal career? 
I think we touched upon all sorts of things that I, I mean, and it could, again, just be my personality. We could get for days for it. But I think overall, I think we've, we've touched on most everything. I think the advice, and it's sort of already seated in what we talked about, but to me, the advice is, one, not losing your sense of humor. I think it's really important to cultivate it. And two, embracing the power of yes, particularly for diverse members. You got to put a little caution to the wind and trust the fates and use all sorts of other phrases that you might want to do. But you got to put yourself in the middle of things. You've got to say yes. You got to be strategic in the sense of it may not have immediate effect. In other words, you may be asked to do something and it does not mean you're going to get a greater paycheck qualitatively or quantitatively added because you did that. But you got to be able to see how you might get benefit that's less monetary but could lead to real advancement for you, including monetary advancement if that's what you're interested in. But in fact, saying yes and getting to see people, getting to meet people, getting more invested in the firm can actually put you in places where your career could grow to where you want to have it. And it's not so much the, can you pay me for this right now, as opposed to how is this going to help me introduce myself to people, get people to know me and grow my career, not just my practice, but my career. That is fantastic advice. And my final, final question for you is if people have questions, comments, want to reach out to you, can they feel free to find you on Foley's website and send you an email? Absolutely. Happy to do that. Well, thank you so much, Eileen. Thanks so much for being on the show. I appreciate the invitation. And thanks for doing everything you do for the firm. Oh, it's fun. I really enjoy it. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. 